Welcome to this special edition of Forthright Radio. I'm Joy LaClaire. The Mendocino Film Festival for 2023 returns this June 1st through 4th. The festival has been a feature on the coast each first weekend of June since 2006, and early on, Forthright Radio has featured a special edition during May of each year called Radio Goes to the Movies to inform our listeners about upcoming feature films of special interest. Today we share two films, Path of the Panther and Body Parts. The first explores the difficulties of documenting efforts to save the remaining Florida panthers in their habitat from the point of view of photographers, filmmakers, and environmentalists. The second, Body Parts, documents the difficulties and outrages actors have dealing with the demands of the film industry depicting intimacy on the screen. We begin with an interview with award-winning filmmaker Eric Bendick about his film, Path of the Panther, which will be screening at the Coast Cinema in Fort Bragg on Friday, June 2nd at 10 a.m., and then again at the Coast Cinema on Saturday, June 3rd at 4 p.m. Drawn in by the haunting specter of the Florida Panther, the award-winning new documentary from Bozeman-based Grizzly Creek Films and director Eric Bendick, Path of the Panther, follows a wildlife photographer, veterinarians, ranchers, conservationists, and indigenous people who find themselves on the front lines of an accelerating battle between the forces of renewal and the forces of destruction that have pushed the Everglades to the brink of ecological collapse. Once ubiquitous in North and South America, but now perched on the edge of extinction, this perilously small, sole-remaining population of the panther east of the Mississippi is an emblem of our once-connected world, a vision of what could be again. We spoke with the Emmy Award-winning director of Path of the Panther, Eric Bendick, about his work and this powerful new film, Path of the Panther. Welcome to Radio Goes to the Movies, Eric Bendick. Thank you, Joy. Eric, you wrote, directed, edited, and produced the film Path of the Panther. Did I leave anything out that you did with that film? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so definitely wore many hats for this film, as you do in documentary a lot of the time. And it was a six-year effort. I think you captured a good sampling of the various roles, but at times that also included being a, a gear Sherpa, carrying lots of expensive camera equipment through deep swamps and uh, avoiding alligators and that kind of thing too. Path of the Panther follows a group of individuals, including National Geographic explorer Carlton Ward Jr., scientists, large animal veterinarians, ranchers, and even the chairman of the DeSoto County Commission as they work to map where the remaining Florida panthers have territories in southwest Florida and to prevent the further destruction of the cat's habitat. It's a beautiful film, Eric, with truly awesome footage, and I use that as adjective in its pre-casually overused sense. Most often here in the West, one hears the term mountain lion or cougar or puma. Are these the same animal as the Florida panther? It's really fascinating. I have roots in Florida, so that's how the story ultimately found its way to me. The panther is something I had heard about as this kind of mythical animal growing up. It's the state animal of Florida, but almost no one has ever seen it. 
And it is so elusive that many people don't even know what it looks like or much about its biology. But the panther is actually a subspecies of the puma. And the puma has the largest terrestrial range of any mammal on Earth. And so it is actually distributed from as far north as the Yukon in Canada, all the way through the majority of North America. And this was historically, this was before many places where the puma was was hunted out. But it would have ranged all the way through Central America and then all the way through South America to the tip of Patagonia. Because it is so distributed across so many areas, it has all these local and regional names, Mountain Screamer, Catamount, Mountain Lion out here in the Rockies, or Cougar west of here in California and in the south. And the Florida Panther is basically the regional name for that same animal, the Puma. But what is so unique about the Panther is that it is the last population, the very last one in the eastern United States. So everywhere east of the Mississippi River, there are no Pumas left. They've been hunted to extinction In many cases, their habitat has been gone or altered. And so this is the very last population of puma, these panthers that live in the swamps and wild places of Florida. One of the fantastic things about your film, you not only document, but you produce just exquisite photographs and video of this magnificent animal. If there is a main character in Path of the Panther, Surely it is Carlton Ward Jr. Tell us about Carlton. Carlton and I have a relationship for about a decade now, working on film and photo projects together. And like a lot of photographers, he is very obsessed with his mission. His overarching goal is really not just about the panther or about wildlife, but is about basically maintaining a wild corridor. So basically a green space that wildlife and natural systems can work through the center of Florida. And because the state has 20 million people in it now, whereas his parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, there was practically no one living there. It has had this massive transformation. So Carlton's ultimate goal and one of the ultimate goals of the film is to communicate that there is still hope for a wild corridor, a wildlife corridor through the central part of the state of Florida. And by setting this example, he's really showing that if you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. And the lessons that can be learned there and the lessons from watching Path of the Panther is really that the world is a connected place and there are opportunities to keep some of that connectivity flowing, both for wildlife and people and water and air and nature. So that's the ultimate goal. And he's perhaps one of the most driven people I've ever met because so much frustration and ups and downs occurred in the making of this film, but really he never gave up in his quest to film and photograph the panther. And so for our film team, we basically held on and said, okay, we're going on this journey with you and we're not going to give up either. 
Also to be honored is award-winning cinematographer and your colleague at Grizzly Creek Films, Thomas Winston. And as I was mesmerized by the terrain that, or whatever the wet equivalent of terrain would be, that Carlton was going through, I kept thinking that the film crew was having to do the same but lugging equipment. <laughs> Grizzly Creek was really founded really to re-energize and reinvent some of the storytelling behind the natural world. And so we have done work in Yellowstone. We have done work in Alaska. We have done work all over North America that really prioritizes visual and cinematography excellence that it's not only been award-winning, like we've, we did win the Emmy for cinematography for Epic Yellowstone, but we really want those visuals to serve a purpose in the story and to really carry you through the story. So when it came down to filming for the Panther, we had a team from Grizzly Creek and there was also a team managing these camera trap units. And the goal for that was really to show you what it's like to be out there in some of these wild places with wild animals like the Panther and really put you in that place in a way that you have never seen before. And I think we were successful because lots of people after these screenings come up and not only are they totally in awe of the fact that these places still exist in a place like Florida, but they are connecting to these places in a sense, getting a view of that wildness that they never had seen before. And another huge piece of the puzzle is not just cinematography, but the audio behind that is just building out these worlds that you basically have a chance to see, especially through the lens of a camera that is filming with no human around, that just gives you a really unique view of the natural world as it is and without humans there. It's been quite a experimental <laughs> process with a lot of ups and downs, but also really rewarding. To oversimplify, water is huge. Explain to our listeners some of the realities of water on that landscape and the biosphere and how it affected your making this film. But before you do that, you mentioned camera traps. They are central <laughs> to this Very effort much. and the success of it. So first of all, talk about what are the camera traps and then talk about just the realities of dealing with the water mm -hmm. there. Sure. The fascinating and compelling thing about a camera trap system is that you set up what is ultimately kind of a, a studio in the woods with several cameras and then an animal. It could be a panther. It could be a black bear. could be a possum or an otter or a gator. Walks through a beam between two sensors and that beam turns the whole system on. So it's kind of in sleep mode and then it it comes awake and then these animals continue down the trail and they're basically being filmed in this sort of studio-like environment with no person around. So you're getting a glimpse of their behavior that is very rare to see because an, an animal like a panther is so sensitive and so observant in terms of its instincts about the natural world that were a person there, it would almost certainly know that the person was there. So you're seeing it as it's going about its natural life. So that is a super cool perspective and, and very novel 
And we did it in probably the most challenging way possible because not only were these really high-end cameras that we had out there, it's not just your average off-the-shelf trail camera here, but these cameras were placed in an environment that is totally unforgiving. The swamp during the wet season goes from basically dry ground to sometimes three, four, up to five feet of water coming into these swamp areas. So if you can imagine these cameras, they're low to the ground, and then all of a sudden a storm event comes and suddenly they're underwater. Or we had hurricanes that came barreling over us and knocked branches down and they were underwater. So they took a real beating. And basically that whole landscape revolves around this seasonal change of water going up and down, up and down through the seasons. And it's a really fascinating part of the natural world there. And it's also pretty difficult for filming because from one day to the next, everything is constantly changing. What do you think the ratio of your specific scene success to failure was and Carlton's success to failure? And by that, I mean how many times you set up versus how many times you actually got something you could use. In the course of the six years that the cameras were out on the landscape, we have close to 800 hours of footage that was captured from those cameras and then another half million still images that came from those cameras. And what you see in the film, which is really the cream of the crop, it's like the things that worked and the things where the lights didn't die or the batteries didn't die or the cows didn't run over the camera or some other thing interrupted are just less than 0.001% of that total. So the odds of us getting that footage... I mean, we had a lot of time. That was the only thing that made it possible. But the odds on any given day of us walking up to a camera trap and seeing something happen and it all coming together right before us with our crew there and Carlton there, and it was just a needle in a haystack type situation. And what is really cool is that one of the most compelling scenes in the film and probably the most exciting camera trap footage, we did exactly that. We walked up to a camera really expecting nothing as we usually do. And lo and behold, we had this incredible moment with a giant black bear and then a amazing panther wading through water. Those moments were really few and far between. But when they did happen, they were very magical. The film has a narrative arc of trying to find if any female panthers made it across what had been a river, but has been mm-hmm. so manipulated by humans that it represents a serious barrier between the southern Everglades and the northern Everglades. There had never been a documented female panther there in, what, 43 years or something? Yes. So we think of panthers and pumas and mountain lions as superheroes that they can get across mountains and that they can roam anywhere they choose and that they're incredible. And they are incredible, widely ranging animals. But human barriers are 
incredibly hard for them to navigate. And the more broken up their land, the harder it is. And the number one leading cause of mortality for pumas and the Florida panther are road kills. These barriers like roads, canals, and anything that creates a hard line across the landscape really affects them and their affects their success. And it is even more true that for female panthers, for pumas that are trying to create new breeding range, which is basically a female that could disperse to a new area, those barriers are often deadly and they don't make it. They can't expand. So for 50 years, there had been no female panther recorded in that northern Everglades area. And it just so happened that as we were starting our film within the first year, a female decided to move north and it did so by swimming across this crazy canal. And that was the first expansion of breeding territory for the Florida panther in 43 years. And not only that, it was one of the first expansions of a big cat range in the globe in the last 50, 60 years. So it represented basically an increase in range for this female that was real hope for big cat populations across the globe. Eric, it's to your credit that in directing this film and creating this narrative, you do create suspense. It's a documentary, but nonetheless, you know, you do. And I don't want to interfere with viewers' experience of the narrative, but I just want to express how incredibly heartwhelming it is that Mm -hmm. this is happening and especially in the state of Florida when there is I'll editorialize here so much that is disturbing to Mm -hmm. many of us. What's cool about the story is that there are so many environmental films and messaging out there that is very doom and gloom and it's hard to be bombarded with that messaging all the time. But I think if you look in the cracks of some of what's happening in the natural world and what we're learning about the natural world, there is real hope there. As long as we can take those good lessons that we're learning and apply them to the bigger picture. And so I hope this message really gets out there in the world and it's not bounded by Florida or the Southeast We would like to spread it as far as the Panthers range, which is all across the country and the continent, because the lessons are very hopeful and the future could be very positive for these species if we learn from it. And so that's kind of been our journey is basically learning what we can do and what we still can hold on to. Part of the narrative structure is following a group of individuals who contribute to the documentation and rehabilitation of the pumas, the panthers in southern Florida. And they were listed on the endangered species far too late. There were only, what, 20 or 30 individuals left. So not only are the numbers very small, but the genetic diversity becomes an issue at that point. And so some of the individuals are veterinarians, and Dr. Lara Kusak is one, and Dr. Dave Onorato. The Florida Panther recovery team went to work when there were an estimated 20 
Panthers left in South Florida. And for a population of mammals, that is way too small of a size to be genetically viable over the long term and also too small to absorb any kind of disaster from a storm or a disease or anything like that. So that team has really dedicated their lives to saving what I would say is every last panther and making sure that new genes have been brought into the population. It's been very successful. It's now estimated that there are close to 200 Florida panthers. And part of the reason that they're moving north is because they need new range. They need new habitat. And it's still a long way from recovered what the species would need basically to survive over the long term they estimate would be about 600 panthers. So it's kind of like we're about a third of the way there. But these researchers and vets and biologists that have been studying the panther and putting together the program for its recovery, they've dedicated their whole lives to this. And this is all the way back from the 1970s till today. So we really owe a huge debt to them for saving this animal. Betty Osceola is featured early on in the film and through the film. She's Mikasuki Indian of the Panther clan, and she brings an important indigenous perspective to the film, especially in explaining how differently her people see their relationships to the panthers. Nature is a great teacher in the animals, the plants, the water. They're a part of nature's way of teaching you. The animals, they don't see those lines, those divisions that are created, these imaginary lines. For them, they still see that system connected and they're trying to get to the areas that they knew. It's still there. That knowledge is still there somewhere. It's waiting for you to bring it back forward to the present. There is that possibility to have those corridors throughout the United States. And it's a wonderment of the panther itself. Somehow it's it's still here is still surviving and hanging on and reclaiming that homeland because it's, it's like a seed waiting to be replanted so it can grow and branch out. When we first met Betty, we were also looking at the big picture in terms of what was happening to the historic panther habitat that was down at the southern tip of the Everglades. And how is that changing? And what she shared with us from our first meeting is that this area, which was formerly quite important for the last stronghold of the panther, was really being affected by hurricanes, by flooding events, and by just all the dams and changes that have affected the southern half of the Everglades. And so as habitat, it was being lost. And when I learned that Betty was a member of the Panther clan, that took on a whole nother layer of significance because for her people and for her clan, they embody the Panther. In their understanding, they were Panther in another lifetime. And so all the qualities of the Panther are theirs to take on. So basically this idea that they're the protectors of the natural world. They're keeping that natural world balanced and in harmony. And they have this very important need to defend their homeland as a panther will do. And so when Betty shared all of this, 
it was so vital and grounding for the film to be seen through those eyes that we knew right away that the film and the story could never be told without that perspective. We are so thankful that Betty lends that perspective because it also gives us a model for how we might take more action in our world as defenders of our planet. These ideas of the panther and how it can be restoring balance to the world, those are things that we can embody. She brings this message and also the consciousness that you can learn from these animals, directly from these animals. And you can learn from the qualities that make them strong. You can learn from all the different species and all of the roles that they have because there are other clans among the Mikasuki tribe and each one does something unique and each one brings something very vital to their world and their community. So that perspective was just incredibly grounding for our film and also it brings a layer to our understanding we would never have had and could never have told the story in the way that she tells the story that is grounded in her history and the identity of indigenous knowledge that we need to basically move forward. I was surprised by the role of the ranchers in the preservation of the Panthers and in particular, Elton Langford, who's a rancher, and he's also the chair of the DeSoto County Commission. Tell us about him and the cowboy story of Path of the Panthers. Well, it's super cool because the panther led us to these characters. The panther led us to Betty and her perspective when we looked in South Florida and then in the northern Everglades when the female panther Babs moved north onto an area called Babcock Ranch. She led us directly to this rancher character, Elton Langford. And Elton was and is one of the most incredible voices in the film because his lineage in Florida goes back 13 generations. So his ancestors were there when the Spanish first arrived, and he was basically carrying on a tradition and a way of life in raising cattle in Florida the way it's been done for 13 generations. Down here, we do things a little slower. And uh, my granddaddy had a famous saying that don't ever get in too big a hurry because you'll always run past more than you'll ever catch up with. So you have this incredible voice that is so close to the land. And when Babs kind of led us to this incredible character, we didn't really know what was going to happen. We didn't really know what he would think about a panther in his midst because many ranchers conventionally thinking is that these would be adversaries. But for him, he understands that he and the panther need the same homeland. They need the same space. They need the same large landscapes. They need the same clean water and clean air and open range that panthers need to move and cattle need to move. And so they have more in common than they do against each other. And the wisdom that he brings is really as a producer that the trade-off, if the panther were gone 
and gone from his lands is basically the encroachment of development and the encroachment of suburbia into these landscapes, which he's seen for his whole lifetime. So what's incredible is that now these ranchers and what would have been maybe their adversary a hundred years ago, an animal that could take a calf or two, but mostly eats deer. And now they're on the same side. They're fighting for the same side because they both need that open space. They both need this way of life that's disappearing. And so now they're united. And I think that is maybe one of the biggest and most empowering lessons of the film is that producers and working agricultural lands in this country provide a ton of benefit to wildlife. And that benefit disappears as soon as they are slated for development for housing and condos and shopping malls and everything else. That's the big take home from his perspective. Do you have final words for our listeners, Eric Bendick? I think that one of the greatest experiences of this whole process has been sharing the film and its messages with a bigger and bigger audience. These films are really important to our culture and to the community of people that work so hard for so many years to bring these projects to life. So I just am very thankful and hoping to tell more stories like this down the road. And we just appreciate all the support. Eric Bendick, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Goes to the movies and for writing, directing, producing, editing this amazing film, Path of the Panthers. Thanks so much, Joy. You have just heard a conversation with Emmy Award-winning director Eric Bendick about his outstanding film, Path of the Panther. Path of the Panther will be screening at the Coast Cinema in Fort Bragg on Friday, June 2nd at 10 a.m., and then again at the Coast Cinema on Saturday, June 3rd at 4 p.m. You can find out more at mendofilm.org. We move now from the survival efforts for the Florida panther and the difficulties filming them in their natural habitat to the difficulties of human beings, and particularly women, who are called to a career in acting. The documentary Body Parts traces the evolution of sex on screen from a woman's perspective, uncovering the uncomfortable realities behind some of the most iconic scenes in cinema history and celebrating the courageous individuals leading the way for change. It's an eye-opening investigation into the making of Hollywood sex scenes, shedding light on the actors' real-life experiences, and tracing the legacy of exploitation of women in the entertainment industry, as well as recent welcome hard-fought changes in that industry. On May 1, 2023, we spoke with director Christy Guevara Flanagan and producer Helen Hood Shear about their film Body Parts, which will be screening at this year's Mendocino Film Festival at Crown Hall on Sunday, June 4th at 1 p.m. Welcome to Radio Goes to the Movies, Christy Guevara Flanagan and Helen Hood Shear. Thank you for joining us today. A pleasure. Thank you for having us. Your documentary, Body Parts, will be screening at the upcoming Mendocino Art Festival on Sunday, June 4th at 1 p.m. in Crown Hall in Mendocino. And it's particularly timely. We're having this conversation on May 1st, 2023, May Day, International Workers' Day. And at midnight tonight, members of the 
Writers Guild of America appear likely to go on strike. Now, you interview several women writers about the lack of women in TV writer rooms. And among other things, your documentary reminds us that actors are also workers and union members of the Screen Actors Guild SAG. So for both the writers and the actors, this is about a worker's struggle against systems of exploitation, exclusion, inequality, and power. And you use the way film and television portray sex and images, particularly of women's bodies, as the central theme of body parts. You go into the history of women in film, and it may surprise listeners to learn that there was a time in Hollywood when women exercised much more equality and power. Would you please share with our listeners some of that history? Thank you, Joy, for doing such a great job of connecting the dots between the labor that goes on in the making of the films that we consume, as well as the effects of the representation itself. That was a big, important point for us to connect in the film. But back before the production code was put into place in the teens and early 20s in Hollywood, there were surprising discoveries that we made when we made the film. And one of them was that women were screenwriters at fairly equal levels compared to the men. Because of that, you saw pretty fascinating women's stories. Women were flying planes and talking about divorce and writing films about their lives. And this changed when the production code was put into effect for a number of reasons. I don't know that there's any one reason, but I think there was just a combination of factors being involved. One of them was that Hollywood was still inventing itself and there were no rules yet. The systems were less in place in terms of being written in stone. I think also that the production code was very, very detrimental to women's stories, to depictions of women's desires and sexuality. They're very limited by pretty Catholic notions of how a woman should be, which is as mother and at the center of the family. I think also Hollywood, as the studio system developed, really saw that it could make a lot of money and began to systematize ways in which to make money. And this also left women out of the equation. I just note the parallel between the prudish, shall we say, code that was put in effect has some parallels with recent judicial decisions about women's sexuality and reproductive powers. Going back to the Comstock Act of 1873 and how that is being re-inflicted on our culture. This is not just a matter of equality and justice for individual actors, but what this does to our culture. And numerous of your interviewees discuss that. Talk about some of those implications. 
I will say that the dots that you're connecting again are something that we were thinking about throughout the entire making of the film. We do think that the struggle for women to control their own bodies and their own representation has ramifications or reverberations through multiple different industries. And that's something that we are definitely hoping that people take away from the film, that ideas about power and consent and representation are not just related to the entertainment business, but all facets of the way that we are in the world. I just think we were so fascinated with this idea of film and television as being a type of sex education in our culture. And at this time, as you've mentioned, where women's bodies are really being heavily legislated, this is such an important connection to make once again. I mean, it remains important. I don't think the importance has ever gone away fully. When you don't have explicit sex education in families or in schools and people are only learning from the images that we see, the messages, the potential for wrong interpretations, shallow interpretations and not really seeing yourself is just so high. As you bring out in the film, individuals and particularly we're talking about women, although men also have been sexually harassed in the film industry. But we're talking more about women now. And it's not just a matter of equality and justice for individual actors, but what this does to our entire culture. What Christy was saying, this is how we learn about sex, whether it's a good idea or not. It's how young people learn when they go out on their first date. What if he kisses me? How shall I kiss him? All that kind of stuff. It's almost propaganda in a way. And whether it's helpful or not is really part of what your film is about, I think. Right. Exactly. The notion that women are are nude or scantily clad so often has deep reverberations about how people view women and how we view ourselves and the fact that women are so infrequently shown and work and with work-related goals also sets a tone for what people think that women are capable of doing. So very much the message that we were trying to explore in the film is about how we learn from what we see and why that becomes so important that the films that we see explore female experience, not only of nudity and intimacy, but all aspects of their lives more authentically and fully. You interview screenwriters actors, scholars, film scholars, and critics. And I am ever more impressed with Jane Fonda. I mean, she just grows and grows and grows and gets more and more profound at the same time with such a light touch. It's just amazing. And I am very grateful that you included her wisdom and experience in this film. She said, Girls feeling that they have to behave a certain way and look a certain way without even consciously realizing it, they will just assume that they are less than, that they don't quite count as much. The more that we perpetuate and condone women as being merely sex objects, the more readily boys grow into men thinking that that's how women want to be treated. It's in every movie and TV show they've ever watched. What does it mean for boys and girls to grow up in a culture where they see men being aggressive in film to get the girl? They pull women into these passionate kisses. 
stop it. Maybe she resists a little bit, like right at first, but he can kiss her into submission. Now that's a really common scene. Jane was such a coup and somebody we actually interviewed early on. And she has such an incredible career. She's been in the industry for so long. So she's just the perfect person to talk about the changes or or what hasn't changed, unfortunately, over time. It's just so wonderful to see her take on projects nowadays that are just about female friendship, about desire for older women. I mean, I, yes, I love her just as much. <laughs> this is Helen. Yeah, Jane was an amazing person for us to include in the film, and her support really helped us in terms of getting the film made and getting other people to be involved in the film as well. Her support of female filmmakers was also experienced by us in her participation. One of the things is that uh, that the Me Too movement and Time's Up brought out is that this was simply not talked about overtly. I mean, there was maybe gossip, but nothing very effectual until a few women stood up courageously and identified themselves, sued individual filmmakers. I mean, Harvey Weinstein is kind of like the exhibit A of all this, but there were others as well. But the point I'm getting to is that this really depended on individuals having the courage to say, this isn't right, we deserve better. Now, the SAG, the Screen Actor Guild contract is mentioned several times in your film Body Parts, and it's described as an 800-page document. First of all, is it really that long or is that hyperbole? And then second of all, what does it include and does not include, especially in terms of actor protections regarding sex scenes and harassment? This is Christy. Well, it is really 800 pages long. And one thing to note about the film is that, like many documentaries, we were making this film for a number of years. And we actually started the project before the Me Too movement and before Harvey Weinstein was named by those group of women so bravely. And we'd really only been about a few months into the project. But at that point, we followed those leads and followed those stories. And it became something that really just contributed to our thesis in a, in a really powerful way. And that women were more willing to come forward and speak out because other women were coming forward and speaking out. I don't know that we can speak to much detail about SAG. Some of that has changed as they renegotiate their contracts and as they have responded to the sexual harassment in Hollywood and to the rise of intimacy coordination as well. I do know that what Amanda Blumenthal had said in our film about it being over 800 pages long and one page about intimacy and sex scenes is true, but I don't know what the specifics are right now, so I'm not sure that we can talk to that. 
And as Christy mentioned, it is changing. We started making the film before the, the industry of intimacy coordinators had come to film and television. It's been intimacy directors have been in theater for some time, but it's very new in this world. One of the things that has changed in the SAG contract more recently is that hotel rooms are no longer allowed for auditions, which might seem like a minor thing, but it's actually quite a significant thing. And the whole process of becoming an intimacy coordinator and becoming a certified intimacy coordinator is still a bit in flux. It's a changing process that's evolving and becoming more codified, which is exciting that the people are still looking at ways to make interactions feel safer. You mentioned something about the the vulnerability of people coming forward as individuals to really move the needle on this very important and very necessary conversation. And something that Kim Masters, who's an entertainment journalist, said in thinking about the story as it broke A lot of journalists were sniffing around knowing that there was trouble afoot for a long time. And one of the things that I remember Kim saying was that it wasn't a story that could be got until it could be got. There was a lot happening for a long time and it just became the moment. The individuals who came forward were an important part of it. But there was also more there. People have known for a long time. That, but I think that that idea that it, that it wasn't a story that could be got until it could be got is important. I was interviewing Rebecca Traster, uh, the New York Magazine journalist, during the Kavanaugh hearings. And she had had an encounter with Harvey Weinstein in New York years before. And he had been violent with her in a public gathering with lots of journalists. And he was was able to lock down that story completely. He even is quoted as saying, New York is my town, or I'm the sheriff of New York, or something like that. And she was stunned that there was a total news blackout about that incident. Even though there was filming of it in public, he actually pushed a journalist trying to protect her down some stairs and knocked somebody in the head. Journalists were terrified of him. And you can imagine actors because he did ruin careers. You did mention about auditions, and you spend a good amount of time in your film Body Parts talking about auditions, and particularly for up-and-coming actors. What do you want our listeners to know about that part of the work? Actors who are starting out are used in these films that ask for nudity and sex scenes because they don't know how to advocate for themselves or they don't have the power to advocate for themselves. An A-list actor who's asked to do a nude scene, they can have a body doubled. They get to say, the light has to be dim and the actor can only touch me from here to here. It's like, I have never had that much protection in a film, but I've done nudity a lot. <laughs> like, I've done sex scenes a lot. It's like, oh, you have to pay your dues and you just have to be grateful that you're here at all. One of the things we were interested was really following the arc of how this all happens, that it's not just one moment in a hotel room, that there are many moments along the way where power has the potential for abuse and where women's roles and the kinds of representations of them on screen are crafted and focused in a way that makes the ultimate stories less meaningful for women and girls watching the audience. So 
in the audition stages, women have to agree whether or not they're going to do any kind of nudity before they even know what the role is, what they may be cast as, what the script is. And so you come into these auditions with just a blanket request. Are you willing to do nudity? Yes or no. And that that is a make or break moment for women, particularly early on in their careers where they're trying to get a foot in the door and they have to already agree to something that they just don't have enough information to really agree to. One of the themes of our films is consent and what it really looks like to have informed consent or affirmative consent. And this is definitely one of the ways in which women aren't given that. So that was one of the things that we were interested in pursuing in showing what the audition stage is like. This is Helen speaking. And also that the process that we're mainly talking about is what it's like on union sets. On non-union sets, women and actors and stunt people, all sorts of people are, are much more vulnerable. Whose view is being depicted? Whose gaze it's kind of like in literature, the narrator, is it a first-person narrator, a third-person omniscient? And generally, it's been the quote-unquote male gaze. Linda Williams, one of the film scholars that you feature, had some interesting insights into the changeover from the strict prudery of the Hollywood code, you know, where married people were only shown in twin beds. And then at the end of the 60s, early 70s, where the early experimentation in including more and more explicit sex scenes for men was, quote unquote, homosocial. Speak about that. This is Christy. Linda Williams is one of the few film scholars and historians that actually writes about sex on screen. And so we did a lot of research to make this film and her work was really pivotal in guiding us. And it was, again, a joy to be able to interview her and have her talk about that work. And what I really appreciated was that historical perspective, that kind of timeline that she offered. And so with the fall of the production code. It didn't happen right away, but it was gradual as the sexual revolution was also happening and all the politics of the 60s and early 70s. Films began to change. And what she was fascinated by was that while these films were becoming more explicit sexually, the roles for women were really not that different. And that explicitness ultimately meant that women were being objectified in an even more sexual way. And that men, while they were getting to explore sexuality more directly, it was often this way where they were kind of proving their masculinity to other men. And so the women were obviously Objects that literally not just to be looked at, but also to be conquered in some way. And in that conquering to avow their masculinity. So it was very fascinating to look at what is considered one of the heydays of American cinema in the 70s, especially for independent cinema, that things were still not any better for women necessarily. Hollywood certainly knows how to do violence very, very well much better than it knows how to do sex. When sex and violence come together, it's rape. No! No! There's so many rape scenes in movies because a lot of times, you know, scripts are written and they imagine that 
This is the only way a female character can get strong is if she's raped. For no apparent reason other than they think something bad needs to happen to her so she can rise up and go murder all the people in revenge. What kind of message does that send out? There's some hatred for women going on when you have to brutalize people, you know, and treat them as subhuman, but then get the glory that you create strong female characters. That's not strong women. Those are brutalized women that have to survive. And look good while doing so. You included in the film trans actors and a disabled actor, and that's revolutionary that, that that's being addressed now. You don't really go into how this change has been occurring, but I wonder if you have any comments on that. The beginnings of inclusion in film... This is Christy again. That was also something that was really important to us. What are the ways in which who gets to be sexy has been very limited traditionally? And what are the ramifications of that? If you don't get to see yourself on screen as a romantic partner, not only do you not feel desirable, but other people don't necessarily consider you possibly as desirable as well. And so we were really interested in the ways in which this very narrow ideal is being pushed and, and broadened. And so it was just so great to hear from people like Alexander Billings and Lolo Spencer about what it really means to them to be these people blazing the trail in terms of representation and that it's so important for their communities. This is Helen speaking. And to do so in a way that's showing normal, banal acts, not that are trying to focus necessarily on stories that are highlighting that particular part of a person's identity, but more looking holistically at it. For example, Alexandra Billings in the film talks about how she really wanted to show a communication with her partner that was just a normal daily event, not something that was making a point out of what a trans identity is, but that's just showing a normal conversation between lovers. In both of those actors' cases, the clips you show of them, not only are they very aware of how radical their inclusion is, uh, not that it should be, but it simply is, but their approach is so joyful and light. That was very appealing to me because it's a long time coming. Share with our listeners what we couldn't get to that you really want our listeners to know about. Helen, let's begin with you. One of the things that we're so grateful to Jane Fonda for doing is is not only connecting the dots between what's happening with people and the way that they respond to media, but also sharing her own vulnerability and her own experience as a young actor. I think that's part of the Jane Fonda that we don't all know. We, we see her as a very powerful woman, which she is, but she also really expresses some of her own growth process. And I think that that was something that we were really happy to have in our film, to have those moments of, of her revelation. We like talking about the process of making the film a lot in, in terms of the research that was done, looking through over a hundred years of film history and selecting the clips that are not only representative of a film, but also of a decade and of the thematic points that we're making and the artistry in the making of the film beyond the large themes that we talk about. Christy Guevara Flanagan. One thing that we also knew early on that we wanted to make sure to do, and maybe you're alluding it, 
to a, a little bit in this conversation, but we wanted to make sure to end the film on a high note with some ways in which film and television can change and that there's not just one solution, that there's different ways in which people can make better film and television, make better representations, more authentic representations of women and girls' lives and tell better stories and not harm people in the process and to really kind of expand this idea of desire and sexuality. So that was really important to us and we're really proud of our third act and the people that we connected with to speak to that. I've noticed over the years in speaking to different people about films, guys tend to gravitate to a certain kind of film and women to other kinds of films. And this could easily be siloed into quote unquote chick flick in the best sense of that word. I know that can be used as a dismissive, but I certainly don't mean it that way. But anyway, do you have any comments or thoughts directed towards men about this film? Well, one thing I like to say, this is Christy again, is that this harms men and boys too. Like our depictions of masculinity are also narrow and uh, we've heard the word toxic before. And that when we talk about representation, we also want to see better portrayals of men who are sensitive and empathetic and pay attention in in important ways and are allies to women and girls. And And so I think that that is also a part of the conversation that we hope people will think about after watching our film. That was Christy Guevara Flanagan we just heard, and also Helen Hood Shear, the director and producer of the film that's going to be screening in Mendocino at the Mendocino Film Festival, Body Parts. And my understanding is that you both will be at the festival. We will. Yes, we will. Thank you both for making this very important film and for being our guest on Radio Goes to the Movies. We very much appreciate it. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Thank you. I enjoyed this interview. You have just heard a conversation with the director of Body Parts, Christy Guevara Flanagan, and producer Helen Hood Shear. Body Parts is screening at this year's Mendocino Film Festival at Crown Hall on Sunday, June 4th at 1 p.m. You can find out more at mendofilm.org. Next week, Radio Goes to the Movies features two more films from this year's Mendocino Film Festival, The Art of Unwar, Christoph Wadishko, and Town Destroyer. Both of these films focus on art as a force for cultural change, reevaluating and reimagining history, repurposing monuments, and creative processes for effective and positive interventions in the dehumanizing status quo. We hope you can join us then. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. Thanks to Pat Ferraro and Ann Walker for production assistance with this edition of Radio Goes to the Movies. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.com. Dot media.